Genesis 6, and we're going to look at the first eight verses. Genesis 6, and we're going to look at five things in the passage. We're going to see, first of all, the wickedness of man, and that's going to be rather prominent. And then, secondly, the patience of God, which, too, will be very prominent. And then, thirdly, the regret of God, and that's verse 6. Fourthly, the justice of God, verse 7, and the grace of God, verse 8. Those largely follow the order of the verses. All right, notice Genesis 6, 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made man, uh, made them. Verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Before we get started, I want to very quickly read a passage from Luther. This is his introduction to chapter 6. And he's going to contrast the first five verses, I mean the first five chapters, with what begins in chapter 6. In the first five chapters, Moses has described the human family as it was in the original world and has set before our eyes the marvelous grandeur of the holy patriarchs who rule the primitive world. In these five chapters, as in a first book, he sums up the story of the happiest portion of the entire human race and of the original world before the flood. At this point, we shall begin the second book of Genesis, which contains the story of the flood and points out that all of the descendants of Cain were destroyed but that the family of the righteous endures through the ages. For when everything was perishing by the flood, the family of the righteous was nevertheless preserved like an everlasting world. Now I said that there's at least those five things suggested in this passage, and so we want to look at those in turn. The first one, wickedness of man, you find in verses 1 and 2, and then 4 and 5. And I want to come back to verse 3 under the second point. We find in the first two verses the wickedness of man illustrated, and then in verse 5, generally described. In verses 1 and 2, specifically illustrated, And then, or in verse 4 as well, I'm sorry, 1, 2, and 4. And then in verse 5, generally described. All right, notice first, specifically illustrated in those 
Three verses, one, two, and four. Now, these verses describe an unholy alliance or allegiance between two groups of men. By the daughters of men is meant the descendants of Cain, and by the sons of God, the descendants of Seth. And this is important to keep in mind, brethren, because we've been seeing over and again how the author of this book is contrasting two seeds. There's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we've seen those whittled down into the descendants of Cain, and Seth. And so when we come to chapter 6, it ought not to surprise us that one of the problems, one of the reasons that God is very upset with mankind is because there's a conflation of seeds. The righteous seed began to marry the unrighteous seed, verse 2b, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Listen, for example, to Matthew Poole. This is noted as the first error, that they did shamelessly choose wives without any regard to their sobriety and religion. That is, men began to choose wives without any regard in the wives of sobriety and religion, minding only the pleasing of their own fancies and lusts, not the pleasing and serving of their Lord and Maker nor the obtaining of a godly seed, which was God's end in the institution of marriage, and therefore should have been theirs too. That's all I'm going to say about that verse, brethren. I find it absolutely ridiculous, to be frank, to suggest that we have here angels having sexual relations with humans. It's not the classic view. The classic Reformed and Christian view is there's the conflation of two seeds, Daughters of men, Cain's seed. Sons of God, Seth's seed. Verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of, of old men of renown. Now, what Moses calls giants here, if you notice... There were giants, and then there were additional ones as the product of this unholy alliance. And by giants are meant mighty men. Here they're described as men of renown. That is, strong, proud, and violent men. Thus, by giants... Physical size may or may not be meant, but it definitely refers to their brutish character. In fact, Calvin makes a big case against size as being referenced, focusing upon their character. The term that's translated giant means to fall upon, and it underscores their wickedness, falling upon men in violent acts. Not their size, though it could go together. Strong, violent, proud, wicked, evil men. He says this. Moses does not intend, does not indeed say that they were of extraordinary stature, but only that they were robust. 
I do not, however, suppose that he speaks of all of the men of this age, but of certain individuals, who, being stronger than the rest, and relying on their own might and power, exalted themselves unlawfully and without measure. Keep in mind, brethren, this is a cause for God's judgment upon men, not upon the angels. The reason why he's angry with men is because it's men that's described in the passage. Men, not angels. All right? That's the wickedness of men, more specifically, or specifically illustrated, that they wed, they conflated the two seeds. And then he summarizes it in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This obviously is a classic text on the total depravity of man. It's a broad description of man's depravity. First, you find its root. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then its expression, the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Man did wicked things in the earth. He filled the earth with wickedness. Why? Because his heart was wicked. And his heart was desperately evil. It was continually evil. It was solely evil. And so we find that a good part or a good cause of this wickedness was the conflation of the seeds. Religion was, was at an all-time low, to put it mildly and plainly. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 17, 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Now he's going to describe them. So we don't want to get the false impression that there was absolute chaos on the earth. There certainly was that. There was violence. There was wickedness, outward expressions of, of wickedness. But there was also a more subtle form of it, and that was just ho-hum, just living life without any thought for God. Listen to how Jesus describes the days of Noah. They ate, they drank, they married wives. Interesting how he points that out, doesn't he? Because he's likely referring back to the conflation of the seeds. And they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. And so we find that there's the wickedness of man very graphically and plainly highlighted in this passage. And brethren, it's not until we understand that where we appreciate this next point, And that is secondly, the patience of God. Verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Notice a couple of things about God's patience. First, it's nature. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. This word translated strive means to contend or dispute. Strive is probably the best way to translate it. I think most of our translations have done so. It refers to the work of God's spirit in restraining the wickedness of man or what we typically refer to as common grace. 
This is the nature of his patience. He's forbearing with man. He's restraining man. He's contending with man. And God fundamentally restrains man in two ways. Inwardly through conscience. And outwardly through the word. And those obviously go together. But even in an environment where there's no word, where there's no preaching, God oftentimes restrains wicked men by the sovereign work of his spirit in and through their conscience. And that's true. I think that's definitely in part the meaning here of this passage. God strove with man. But he didn't just strive with man inwardly in the, uh, in the conscience of man, but he did so also outwardly in the ministry of the word. And you say, but how do you know that? Well, because the New Testament says two things about Noah, and both of them are relevant to the point. Let me read them very quickly. 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. By the Spirit Christ preached through Noah. This is something of a paraphrase of the passage. By the Spirit Christ preached through Noah to the spirits now in prison. So in Peter's day, those people that Noah preached through to were now incarcerated in hell. And Noah preached, it says Christ preached by the Spirit through Noah. That's how Peter puts it. But Noah's the preacher. And then it says, who formerly were disobedient, Talking back, thinking back to this generation. When once, listen to how Peter describes it. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared. So you have a time frame over 100. Here it's identified as 120 years. That the ark would be constructed. And this would be the time of God's patience. Furthermore, it would be the time of Noah's ministry. Because we also find in the second passage, that 2 Peter 2.5, Noah described as a preacher of righteousness. Christ himself preaches in his minister by his spirit. That's what we learn from these passages. And that was true of Noah. Christ himself preached in and through Noah by his spirit. And he preached what? Righteousness. That's the same thing we preach, brethren. Remember what Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and he will convict the world of righteousness. He will convict the world of their unrighteousness and God's gracious provision of righteousness in Christ. That's what Noah preached. He didn't have many converts. But nevertheless, he was a faithful preacher. But he not only preached by his words, but he preached by his actions because he constructed an ark, Peter says. And so they could hear Noah building that ark. And when they would hear him building the ark, they might laugh. Perhaps they laughed at him saying, that old fool, is he still building that ship up on the hill? Telling us that God is angry with the world because of our unrighteous deeds. Warning that he's going to judge us with a flood. Warning us that there's a severer judgment to follow that. And that's the waves of hell itself. 
telling us about this Messiah, the seed of the woman promised to Adam and Eve. And so we find that God's patience was extended for 120 years. And the reason behind this patience, or the need for patience, is found in the phrase, for he is indeed flesh. Now, by flesh here is likely meant fallen and corrupt humanity. All men have become flesh. And I think this, there's an um, inference being not just the seed of Cain, but now all men. Now these men also is how some of your translations put it. Now these men too have become flesh. That is, all flesh, all corrupt, all wicked. In fact, I think it's interesting how Paul uh, captures this um, relationship or contrast between flesh and spirit in his letters. For example, Galatians 5.17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition one to another. Now this is a, a, a passage that speaks about how the Holy Spirit fights against our remaining flesh, right? He's talking about Christians. In Genesis 6, it's saying he's going to give up. He's going to give up restraining, reigning flesh. And he's going to just let man become more wicked all the way up into the end of the 120 years, and then he's going to bring a flood and destroy man. All right, so we've seen the... Uh, the nature and need, and then I've already mentioned this last part of patience, but let's look at it very quickly. It's duration. Yet his day shall be 120 years. God here isn't saying that man's lifespan will be reduced to 120, but he's saying that there's going to be 120 years, and then there's the judgment. God will judge the world in 120 years. One commentary said like this, The 120 years refer to a grace period before God would pour out his wrath on mankind. God is patient and forbearing, and he postpones his judgment to allow for repentance. So God is giving man opportunity to repent. And he's hearing the gospel message by a faithful preacher of righteousness. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 13 that's similar to this account. If you remember, let me just read you that very quickly. You may not be too familiar with it. It's not one of the famous ones like in Luke 15. But nevertheless, it's just as helpful. <clears throat> Luke 13, 6, he spoke this parable... A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, it seems possible, if not likely, that Jesus here is referring to the nation of Israel for three years, his public ministry. He's coming to them for three years looking for fruit, but there isn't any. And he's going to chop it down. 
And yet we find that the, uh, in, uh, the vin, uh, the, I'm sorry, verse uh, 6, a certain man had a fig tree, planted his vineyard, and came seeking fruit for it, and then said to the keeper of his vineyard, He came to the keeper of the vineyard saying, look, for three years I've been looking for fruit but haven't found any. I'm going to cut it down. And the keeper of the vineyard intercedes for the vineyard and asks for an extension of time. Let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit well, and if not after that, you can cut it down. So you have justice coming, as it were, seeking fruit. And you have patience, if you will, asking for an extension of time. And that's kind of the same principles that we find back in Genesis 6. We find that man's wickedness had become great. And God was about to, as it were, cut it down. And yet he gives it an, an extension. An extension that was necessary Yes, for Noah to construct the ark, 120 years. But also that gave ample opportunity for man to repent. Because as I've said, they would have not only the witness of of Noah, but his preaching. Because he was a preacher of righteousness. Now that brings us then thirdly to verse 6, and the regret of God. We've seen the wickedness of man, the patience of God. And now the regret of God, verse 6. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, the first thing we find here is that Moses is making a contrast between God and man. Man's man's heart is wicked, verse 5. God's heart is grieved because of his regret, Now, we know at the outset, brethren, that this is figurative language. Because God doesn't have a heart like man does. Man has a physical heart and he has a spiritual heart. By spiritual heart, we mean the inner man. Man is two parts. He's body and soul. He's outward man. He's inward man. He's not one or the other. He's both. He's a composite Man is made up of two parts. Outward man, inward man. Brethren, God doesn't have an outward God and an inward God. No, this, at, at the outset, necessitates us to interpret the, te- the text cautiously. Furthermore, the scriptures expressly teach us that God does not regret or Repent. For example, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Same term. God is not a man that he should lie. God is not a man that he should repent, that he should change. The word repent means to change your mind. Men lie. Men change their mind. In contrast, God does neither. Furthermore, 1 Samuel 15, 29, The strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. 
So these passages teach us that God doesn't repent. He cannot repent, and the reason is, is because he's not a man. It doesn't say that he repents differently from a man. It says he doesn't repent because he isn't a man. So how do you interpret, how do you understand, how do you harmonize texts when they seem to contradict each other? This text says God repented for making man. He changed his mind. He was regretful, sorrowful in making man and grieved at the fact that he did. Other texts tell us that God doesn't repent, cannot repent or relent because he isn't a man. Well, brethren, obviously, this passage is using language true of man and improperly applying it to God. Just like it says in verse 8, then the Lord saw. Same phrase you find in verse 2, then the sons of God saw. Does man see like, does God see like man? The sons of men saw. They, they, they saw something. That means they learned something. They saw something they hadn't previously seen. God doesn't do that. This text says that God sees as man sees. But is that true properly? Of course not. It's improperly applied to God. In other words, it's a condescension to help us understand who God is. It's attributing to God, it's attributing to God human body parts and actions. As if God had eyes and God had a heart, as if God changed his mind and was sorry. None of those are true of God properly. None of those are true of God properly. They're only true of God in a figurative sense. To aid our understanding of who God is. Let me give you, for example, some testimonies. Listen to Calvin and Luther both on this text, Genesis 6.6. Calvin said, the repentance which is here ascribed to God does not properly belong to him. See, that's a theological term, properly and improperly. This repentance ascribed to God does not belong to him properly, but has reference to our understanding of him. This is, in, this is from his sermon, brother. This is what he preached to his people on Thursday nights. This isn't a theological lecture. He, he expected his people to understand that, that this grief and this repentance, this change of mind, doesn't belong to God properly, but has reference to our understanding of him. For since we cannot comprehend him as he is, It is necessary that for our sake he should, in a certain sense, transform himself in terms of how he reveals himself. He has to come to our level. Brethren, he allows himself to be described in terms that's properly true of men. If we affirm that God changes in and of himself, either in his person or his purposes, brother, we got a problem. 
God doesn't change. And when we say God doesn't change, we don't just mean he doesn't change from a God to a dog or to a horse. Surely he doesn't do that. But neither does he change with regards to his purposes. Neither does he change from one state of being to a next. He doesn't go from angry to happy, sorrowful to grieving. Somebody says, well, okay, we believe that God doesn't change. He's always what he is. He doesn't become something he isn't. He doesn't become a dog or a horse. But that's not what the doctrine of of, um, immutability affirms. It never has. That's not the argument. The argument or the question here isn't whether or not God changes into something altogether that he wasn't. No, the question is, does he go from one state of being to another? He doesn't go from one state of being to another. He always is. Again, Luther. God, in his essence, is altogether unknowable. Again, these were his lectures that he preached through the week to his people on the book of Genesis. God, in his essence, is altogether unknowable. Nor is it possible to define or put into words what he is, though we burst in the effort. It's for this reason that God lowers himself to the level of our weak comprehension and presents himself to us in images, in coverings, as it were, in simplicity, adapted to a child, that in some measure it may be possible for him to be known by us. Thus, when Scripture ascribes repentance to God, it doesn't mean he actually changes his mind or purposes. That's what the word means, literally. It means to change your mind. That's what repentance is. It's to change your mind. And it results, true biblical repentance results in a change of what? Actions. Now stop and think. That's the whole point here. The whole point here isn't that God changes in his being or in his purposes. But there is a change in dispensation. It simply means that God is making a change in his actions with respect to men. And these actions with respect to men were decreed, this change of action with respect to men was decreed from eternity. So what God is doing here isn't something that he didn't decree. And in making the change from having a world fit with people to destroying it, that change in his dispensation, in his activities among men, is merely the fulfilling or the outworking of that which he decreed from eternity past. God didn't just realize as he looked down from heaven, man, I really regret doing what I did. I wish I never would have made man. I'm really sorry. I'm really put out by this. This is really, this is really difficult for me. I'm not able to, to sleep at night over this. I think I might need some help. Brother, away with that wicked, foolish nonsense. That's not the God of the Bible. 
The God of the Bible doesn't change. He doesn't change in his person and he doesn't change in his purposes. What God has decreed to do that which he will do by his sovereign providence. And so when change is attributed to him, it doesn't mean that there's change either in his being or persons, but simply in his ways, activities, or dispensations among men. And those changes of ways, dispensations, and activities among men were decreed from everlasting. And so listen to John Bunyan, how he puts it. Repentance in us is a change of the mind. But in God, a mere outward change of dispensation. For otherwise he repents not, neither can he, because it stands not with the perfection of his nature. Then he quotes James 1.17. In him there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's no change in God, brother, and that's what James is saying. And that's what these three men are asserting. So we have to be careful when we come to a text like Genesis 6, 6, and we have to interpret it, one, in keeping with the rest of Scripture, and also the nature of God. This text doesn't contradict the nature of God. God is not a man, and thus accordingly, he neither lies nor repents. He can't. Because he's not a man. You lie and you repent. We lie and we change, but God doesn't. Now, this regret that's spoken of in verse 6 is clarified further down in verse 7 where we find fourthly the justice of God. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth. This is what God is going to do. And he's going to do so because of his justice. He's going to destroy the earth because of his justice. God says he will destroy man as well as, verse 7, beast, creeping thing, birds of the air, for I regret, for I'm sorry, for I repent, same term, that I've made them. In other words, God is going to uncreate creation. And that's why it's put in the way it's put. He really goes, if you look at it, man, beast, creeping thing, birds of the air. He starts with the sixth day and goes backward. It's almost as if God is saying, I'm going to undo it. And I'm going to undo it because of man's sin. And I'm going to do so because I'm infinitely, unchangeably, essentially and eternally just I'm going to destroy this world literally from man to beast everything is going to be destroyed for man's sake somebody might say but why why the why the animals why the earth they didn't do anything well think back They were cursed originally because of man's sin. 
And now they're going to also suffer the judgment of God because of man's sin. God created these things for man. And because of man's sin, they suffer the consequences. It was true with regards to the curse and it's true now with regards to the fall or to the uh, flood. Gail said, these were made for his use and benefit, but he's sinning against God, that is man, and abusing his mercies, they are to be taken away and destroyed for his sake and as a punishment for his sins. So we find the wickedness of man, the patience of God, the regret of God, the justice of God, and then we find this happy verse at the end of our passage, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Some of you might be familiar with a famous sermon that Martin Lloyd-Jones once preached from Ephesians 2, but God. Well, this is another but God text. It doesn't say the words but God, but it has the gist of that verse in it. But Noah, because this isn't about Noah, verse 8, but Noah found grace in In the eyes of the Lord. Brethren, let me tell you a secret here. God doesn't literally have eyes either. When it says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it simply means that Noah found favor with God. The Lord saw him with favor. That's how it's put. The Lord saw him graciously. This is why Noah wasn't destroyed with the others. And I think that this is intentionally put like this. It's not like Noah was something special. You have the rest of mankind being destroyed justly for their sins, but Noah, it doesn't say, but Noah was a little better, but Noah was a little more sensitive to spiritual things, but Noah wasn't as bad as the rest, but Noah really was a good boy from the beginning. No, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. God looked upon him with favor. Both Calvin and Luther have to spend a lot of time here because this is a a text that the Roman Catholics would use to stress their doctrine of free will. As if the the hero or the main thrust of verse 8 was Noah. But brethren, that's turning it on its head. The hero of verse 8 isn't Noah. He's the recipient. The hero of verse 8 is God. The stress of verse 8 is grace in contrast to all that's gone before. Noah was like the rest. He found grace. He found it where? In God. Or God, for the sake of the Messiah, looked upon Noah with favor. Grace means unmerited favor. Favor bestowed upon guilty and hell-deserving sinners. Favor bestowed for the sake of God's promised Messiah. That's how and why Noah found favor. Though at times small, God always has an elect remnant. People that lives in, but not of this world. And at present, this remnant was small. 
Noah, his wife, in total eight souls, his three sons and their wives. And from that, from that, would come a new populated world that was shadowy, typical of the new heavens and earth, that all of God's Noah will land into when they come out of his salvation, bought and secured for them by the same person and for the same reasons that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And that is for the sake of Jesus Christ. So let us not miss the big picture, brethren. The big picture isn't that Noah was something special. The big picture is that God, for the sake of the promised seed, poured out grace and mercy upon one of these hell-deserving, wretched, depraved sinners, and did so for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, we have a hymn to transition our time into prayer, and that's going to be a hymn that celebrates that grace. And that's hymn 705. But where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. A a concise testimony or summary of these eight verses. Hymn 705. Mm -hmm. 